Dr. Liz Fernandez was raised in Southern California and decided at an early age that she wanted to be a veterinarian. She earned her undergraduate degree in biochemistry and her veterinary degree from the University of California, Davis in 1982. She went into emergency and small animal relief practice for the next 25 years. A shoulder injury led her to seek acupuncture care and she decided to pursue veterinary acupuncture training for herself. She is certified in acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, Tui Na, and food therapy from the Qi Institute. She is also certified in TCVM palliative and end-of-life care by the Qi Institute and in hospice and palliative care by the IAAHPC. Dr. Fernandez started a holistic house call practice while still working in conventional medicine, moving to full-time house calls in 2010. In 2016, she published a book about her patients, Sacred Gifts of a Short Life, Uncovering the Wisdom of Our Pets' End-of-Life Journeys. In 2019, she created Wisdom Paws, an online program and individual consultation practice to support end-of-life guidance for both pet owners and veterinary professionals. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Liz Fernandez as we discuss her education, transition to holistic practice, creating educational materials, and finding balance while doing emotionally taxing clinical work. Dr. Fernandez, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Hey, where did you grow up? So I grew up in a lot of different places. Well, actually three. Um, my dad was in, uh, he was an aerospace engineer. So we moved around from Chicago area, St. Louis area, and Southern California. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I've been in Southern California pretty much nonstop since about 1971 or 72. No, so. no getting you out of there, huh? No, I, I actually like it here. I spent about a year, 16 months um, in the Dallas area helping my brother with his kids. But other than that, this is, this is home. Good. <laughs> when, did you, uh, when did you think you wanted to be a veterinarian? Well, when I was about four, I started seriously contemplating the question that adults seem to always be asking me about what do I want to be when I grow up? So I thought I was supposed to know. So uh, my mom suggested that I do something that I love, if you know, as a career. And so I thought about it. And by the time I was seven or eight, six, seven or eight, I was very clear that I wanted to be a veterinarian because I loved animals and I actually liked um, medicine. My mom was a, a trained to be a nurse. And she had a bunch of nursing books and I just would, I couldn't get enough of them. She, you know, we always looking at them if she'd let me. So, so that's nice. when I started and never changed. That's great. <clears throat> Where did you do your undergraduate studies? So I went to Moorpark College for two years and then grad, um, transferred up to UC Davis and got a biochemistry degree there. And I went to vet school there and that's where I you know, did all the to all the Western vet, uh, education. Yeah. Did doing the biochemistry, did you feel like that was helpful in preparing you for vet school? It was helpful the first couple of years, especially when we had to take biochem in, in vet school and everybody was freaking out and I'm like, Oh, I got this. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I thought it gave me a good, a good background. I'm, I actually chose that major um, because I didn't have to, um, have any speech requirement, any speech class requirement. Cause I was very, 
I'm interested in speaking, public speaking, which has completely changed at this point. (laughs) Yeah, look look where your career is taking you now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. So that was just part of the path, I guess. But it was it it was a good major for me. Hey, but in hindsight, having uh, less stress with biochem in vet school is probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And right, anywhere you can take your foot off the gas a little bit and relax would be uh, exactly. very welcome. Exactly. Did you enjoy vet school? I did. I did. I I had classmates that said, you know, there was always there was a multiple of them would say. There was a point where I didn't know whether I was wanted to do this or if I was going to be able to do it. But I never, I never experienced that. I just, you know, was all excited about it. I knew pretty early that I didn't want to work on large animals because I didn't want to work on anything that could kill me. So um, that, uh, although you know, dogs could, I suppose, but um, I felt confident that I could avoid that. <laughs> so small animal it was, and and. You know, it's been great. So what what happened? Uh, what did you do after you graduated? So I went into a small animal practice that I'd been working at. And shortly after that, I started doing emergency work and uh, did that for 25 years. But getting out of that, I my early 40s, I realized that that was not going to be sustainable. And I had been doing emergency and relief work. And it was okay, but um, I just knew that the the emergency part was not going to be sustainable. So I started looking at other options and um, was always curious about acupuncture, even from the time that um, Nixon went to China and one of his entourage got appendicitis and they used acupuncture for part of the anesthesia. I was just like, whoa, what is this stuff? So um, I started this, I studied it. I got certified in at Chi, through the Chi Institute in 2002 and started a, a house call practice while I was doing my emergency work and found that, you know, I could work at that point I was working days in emergency. They just opened up the clinic 24 seven. So I, I said, sure, I'll do the days and it's much less hectic. But even if it was somewhat hectic, I would get off at six o'clock and be relatively exhausted and go and see a client and, you know, an acupuncture appointment. And by the end of that appointment, I would have more energy than when I left the clinic at six. So that was my kind of telltale that this was good. (laughs) This is where I was supposed to be. So yeah, I've been doing that for, um, I did it alongside of the other, you know, relief work and emergency work for probably 10 years. And then in 2010, went just full time. This is all I've been doing. And it's, I have a house call practice and it's wonderful. I still love doing the house calls. Did you, uh, when you got to the Chi Institute for your first class, did you feel like it just, it was something that just clicked with you? Well, at the time, I was dating a guy that was an acupuncturist. So he had given me a little bit of information, but um, it was, it was still foreign, but I'll tell you what, Dr. Shea is who made it accessible. He is an excellent, um, teacher and educator, and he had worked enough with Western 
veterinarians to understand more about how they thought. And so he could relate and teach us in a way that we could understand. <laughs> Sometimes his, his languaging, you know, or his accent was more challenging, but the way he taught and the, the, um, the imagery and the, the way he presented it made it very, very accessible. And I also think that the fact that um, I had already been out of school for 20 years um, was helpful, you know, because I had a huge background and, and it's like, oh, I can relate that to this case or that case or those symptoms or, you know, and so I think that that made it much easier too. Were you able to, uh, when you're taking the course, were you able to put it into, put it oh, into absolutely. practice at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, immediately. What I had chosen to do so that I was able to, to really, um, uh, get the, the expertise because that's what was encouraged. They said, you know, go back home and start doing it. And so I did. And what I, what I did is I was working, uh, in an emergency clinic. And so I had a lot of, you know, I had technicians that had dogs that I could, you know, play with and my own dogs and, and, and even some clients. And I just said, Hey, look, you know, I'm still in training. I'm just gonna, you know, let me just try it. And even with some of the, the clients, um, I got an okay from the, the, the emergency clinic that I was working at. I said, look, I just want, I'm going to offer it to clients if they want it. And they go, sure. If they want it, they're fine. That's fine. So, um, I didn't charge anybody for it. I figured while I was in training, I could afford to do that and I could afford to do that anyway, but I thought that that was fair thing to do. And, and so I got a lot of experience, you know, and it worked out perfectly. And then, and I told people, I said, once I'm certified, you know, things will change. And, and, you know, that was just kind of the way I approached it. And so I got a lot of experience while I was doing it. And then I could come back and, you know, talk about it the next session. Hey, this is what I found. This is what, you know, the challenge that I had. And I remember the first one I had this, this dog that I had determined, I think it was a Roddy and it was a fire dog. And, and I, he was just horrible to needle. So I get back and I'm telling the class about this case. And Dr. Shea says, Oh yeah. One thing I didn't tell you, fire dogs, they don't like needles. <laughs> like now you tell me. <laughs> Thank you. You know, so, so, and it's, I have found it to be, you know, fairly accurate. And so, um, anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. But, that is funny. Do you, uh, looking back, I mean, I know your career took a diff different tra trajectory, but um, do you feel that acupuncture has a valid place in the emergency room or in emergency practice? Yeah, I do. I mean, certainly we have, you know, points to, to resuscitate. And what one of the things that I did is since I was doing the emergency, you know, the morning during the day, especially the, um, the bloat, the hemangiosarcoma, you know, the splenectomies, um, I could get those guys eating fast compared to, you know, them lingering. So sometimes I wouldn't be on that next morning, but I'd be on the morning after and I'd say, Hey, you know, let's, let's try some acupuncture. I've got plenty of time and I got nothing better to do. And if it's going to help your dog, it's going to help. And, and, you know, 90% of the time they're up and out the door by the end of the day and where they were just 
you know, not feeling well. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, yeah. I definitely feel that it does. And it's interesting yeah. to see how it's evolved on the human side with uh, veterinary or uh, veterinarians, acupuncturists getting involved in, in providing care in, the, in even the emergency room. I think it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I mean, I would, I've had people and friends and relatives in the emergency room. And, you know, I'm just doing acupuncture on them because I, because <laughs> I know I better not be poking needles you know somebody's gonna throw me out but uh yeah it's you know it, it's not gonna it's not gonna fix the broken leg immediately but it certainly can you know start to to shift things around and and get the body back in 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 a more homeostasis i have a very interesting story about a dog that did have um uh sarcoma it already had a splenectomy and part of his liver removed. And they knew at that point, you know, that it was, he was terminal. Um, so he was, you know, just living out his life at home. And I had talked to them about, you know, doing some herbs and especially some buyout because he still had evidence of cancer. And they called me one night and they said, you know, he's collapsed. And I, when I got over there, um, he was pale, he was bleeding. And, um, I actually, t I gave him some union bio, um, and I gave him the emergency red pill and, um, he, you know, I told them, I said, I think he's, I don't think he, you know, this doesn't look good. Do you want me to do some acupuncture on him? And the, using the acupuncture points that actually will you know, either stimulate them to come back and rally or help them to pass. And they, and I told them that, and they said, yes. And even before I started that, or just kind of as I was starting that, he was agonal. I mean, literally I, I was holding him. He was in, his head was in my lap. And I said, I think he's dying. And then he didn't. And so, I continued putting the needles in and darn if that dog didn't make it and through the night and they had a birthday party planned for him two days later. I came back the next evening and he was jumping around playing with his toys. That's amazing. And I was, I mean, I had I not, 20 years prior, I would have said, you know, he needs to be euthanized right now. Or I think he's, you know, I don't know, but he didn't die, you know, and the acupuncture and the, the, the uh, little red pill did something. And, and I also think that the people, you know, were just so, they were okay if he died. And I told them that he might, but they just wanted to, you know, play it out and, and they just gave him, you know, lots and lots of love. And this happened one more time a few weeks later. And that time they didn't call me. They just gave him another red pill and, um, you know, called me and let me know. And then he recovered from that and he rallied. And then a few weeks later, a week or so later, similar episode, and he did die. 
but the clients were very, very okay with that. They knew what they were looking at. They knew everything, you know, what was happening. And they just, um, they just were so grateful that they had the extra time with him. He had his birthday party two days later. All the family was there. And, you know, he was just super, super loved. And I think that that kept him alive and kept him, you know, willing to, to continue to be here for a while longer. And then his, 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 uh, his body finally kind of gave up and, and the last time she did not do anything. She didn't try and do anything. She just held him and, and was there with him and let him go. And we had talked about that too, about letting them just, you know, not trying to, um, if, if, if she was ready. And so the last, the third time she was, you know, I think she felt like, you know, she had gotten, you know, every bit of life out of him and that he had to offer and, and, yeah. and he was willing to give it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't, he was very happy. So. Ah, great story. Yeah. Hey, so you, you started your house call practice. How did, how did you build the business? Well, I, I went to, um, some of the, as a vendor, some of the, you know, local, um, events, dog, you know, there's one that's called the pooch parade. Then, in Ventura and where I live in California. And, and, and so a few of those, I think I did advertised in a, one of the health type local magazines once or twice. But after that, it was just word of mouth. Um, and I, you know, the local veterinarians, the local veterinarians all knew me because I'd been doing emergency work for 20 years. So they knew me and they trusted me. And they were willing to, if someone asked, um, and for a while I was one of only a couple of people out, you know, that were doing anything local, um, with acupuncture or Chinese medicine, but they would, um, they would refer to me, you know, say, well, you know, yes, I do know somebody that does that. Um, and, and so, um, that's how I built the practice and it was mostly word of mouth, um, and referrals. Um, I also, when I, when I did my, when I, I started my practice and like I said about, I mean, I was doing it in 2008, 2009 and setting my, my, my prices, but in 2010, uh, you know, we were still kind of in the throes of the, um, that big recession and I was going from working part-time doing this and part-time doing relief to not having any relief to do because no one, <laughs> no one was offering any relief because they couldn't afford to. Um, and I set my prices across the board and I, and I've kind of done this from the very beginning at a price that I was not resentful about going and, you know, taking a, this appointment and not feeling like I was, um, taking advantage of the client and that has worked really, really well for me. And then when I get so busy that I can't, I'm saying no, and I don't like to say no, then I just raise my prices and the prices say no. <laughs> That's a good so, strategy. That's a really yeah. good strategy. And just to go back for a second, I mean that, uh, what a wonderful advantage for you to have some, uh, as you mentioned, credibility amongst your colleagues. Yeah. From your relief work and your emergency work to be able for them to know that uh, they yeah. could trust you. 
Yeah. And that's, and that, that's that was just huge. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. That, that was really, really important for, for building my practice, I think. And it, it just made it easy, you know. Um, and I did, I did one, <laughs> I did one, um, local association meeting where we, I talked about acupuncture and a couple of the other veterinarians that were doing acupuncture also joined me. And, and I have to say, and this was, this was like 2006, maybe 2005, something like that. But they were less than enthusiastic, um, really not interested that much. Um, and when I went to Texas and that was in 2007, um, I, uh, shockingly, surprisingly, lovely surprise to me, I wound up talking to um, or getting involved with this woman who was from the Knights of Columbus, and they invited me to give a talk on acupuncture for animals. And they were so engaged and so interested and asked so many good questions. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong here? <laughs> my <laughs> colleagues aren't as interested as you are, and you all are in Texas. <laughs> Nothing oh my against gosh. Texas. They, they were very, very lovely. So um, anyway, I just I just find that a little bit interesting. But things have sh- certainly shifted. Now there's a lot more options in terms of acupuncture, even in our community, and, and yeah. much more open to it and, and in fact, since COVID, I think I've got more referrals. It's like, I don't know what to do with this here. Maybe some acupuncture work <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> oh, gosh. How did you handle, uh, how did you handle your practice during COVID during the, you know, the initial phases? Yeah. So, you know, everybody wasn't letting anyone in and all of a sudden there were no, no, um, options for people to do, to be with their animals when they were being euthanized. And so I just made it very clear to any, anybody and everybody that, if you want to do an in-home euthanasia, I will do it and I'll be there and I'll let you be there. Um, so that was, you know, the first thing. And, and with my clients, you know, they were calling, what do I do? I can't get in anywhere. I can't, you know, and, and so, you know, I was actually incredibly busy. Um, even early on, I think the first month I was not, I was about half as busy as I normally would be. And after that, everything pretty much doubled. Wow. Which, you know, I was just grateful that I was healthy and I could do things. And, and I was, you know, I was, I had this, I had bought these nightgowns so that I could, and, and I was wearing, you know, wearing a mask. And so, and I, at, at each appointment I would change out to a different nightgown. So that was my, my PPE at that point when everybody was being super, super careful, you know, and wearing gloves and everything. So, so, um, yeah, things kind of lightened up, but yeah, it was, it was weird. And, and, you know, a lot of times I would be outside with the clients and, and if the clients, if, if they're clients that I knew and they wanted to be, you know, not to be present that, and I knew I could handle the, the, the pet, then I would. So, yeah. Do you have an assistant or is it just you? It is just me. So my assistants okay. are my, <laughs> my clients. For yeah. The most part. Yeah. Yeah, I've kept it very simple. Um, so it's worked well. Well, let's talk about, I mean, it's a natural progression to go from house call work into your hospice work, but tell me how that happened. Yeah, so so obviously we have, um, have a tendency, especially with the house calls, to see pets that are um, having trouble with mobility or and older, just geriatric pets in general. And I didn't even have a DEA license when I started my practice. Um, 
And I really wasn't interested in doing in-home euthanasias. I wanted to do acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And, and then, you know, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that um, if you're seeing geriatric pets that are going to come that time that they need to be euthanized. And, and I wanted to actually euthanize them. You know, I wanted to be there for that last part of the journey. And so, so the part that I've never opted to, to engage with is taking care of the bodies and the aftercare. So there are, there were, there have always been at least three options for people, um, since I've been doing this, um, where the crematories will come to the home and pick up the bodies directly from the home. And they're, they've all always been very, very nice about it. Very, very good about it. So I didn't have to, I could, I could offer that and set, let my clients know that that was an option that they had if they didn't have other arrangements already made. And sometimes they do. Um, and so, so that's what I've done. And now there's like five or six different options. And even during COVID, you know, there was always at least somebody that could, could come. Um, or would come. So um, that was kind of, you know, that was the, one of the bigger obstacles in the very beginning of me doing it because it's like, you know, I, I just did not want to have to deal with all of the freezer and the moving the bodies. And, you know, I'm not that big of a person. I can, I'm relatively strong, but still it just was not, not something that I wanted to do. And I, and I so honor the people that do it, you know, and most people do. I know all the people at Lap that love do it somehow or another. I'm not exactly sure how, but anyway, so, so I decided that I wanted to be able to, to do this for my clients and, and I didn't advertise because, and most of all I did was just for my clients and that was plenty. Um, and then as I was, you know, time went on, I started to have more and more, um, clients that were getting to that point and they were struggling. And, and so we would have these conversations and over time, because I would see these, these pets, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, the conversations, and we're just sitting there while the needles are in, you know, so there's at least 20, 30 minutes of conversation of this, that, or the other thing. Um, and so end of life, you know, topic would inevitably come up at some point. And over time, I was also doing my own work, um, spiritual work and, and um, getting comfortable with the concept and, and the reality of death and, um, and even suffering, but mostly death. And so I would have these conversations with clients and, and I would offer them a perspective of death that you know, it's happening all the time. And just that alone is kind of like, what do you mean? And then when we think about it, of course it is, you know, we have the winter that comes and the spring and there's death and rebirth and it's, you know, your cells are dying, etc. So, so as I would share stories and then share stories of, of previous clients of what they went through and how they handled it and what I learned from, you know, this client or this pet. And I would share those things with other clients and I could just see how their whole demeanor would change. And they, this kind of, I'll use the word, you know, the light bulb came on, but it was more like this sense of, of wash being washed over with something that made sense to them and gave them a certain level of peace. And I could just see their whole body relax and not have this 
you know, heavy angst about death in general and death, death and, you know, the upcoming um, experience that they were, you know, so afraid of with their own pet. And so I decided that I was going to write a book about some of these stories that I kept retelling at this point, um, my, my clients and, and sharing. I'll give you an example of one. Um, I was uh, there to euthanize a, a, a dog, a German shepherd that had had degenerative myelopathy. And they'd called me out twice before and then canceled. And, you know, the guy was, he was a super guy and, and wanted to do everything he possibly could for his, his dog. And the dog is, had actually been his wife's before they were married, but he was just, he had stepped up and done all of the physical things that needed to happen, you know, and, and, but he was exhausted and he was, it, it took a lot for him to acknowledge that it, physically he could do it, but emotionally he, he couldn't. And so his wife finally called me and said, we're ready. And they spent the whole day with the dog and I came out and it was just about dusk. And the guy said, you know, he had such a good day. And I said, yeah, because you were all focused completely on him, your son, you, grandma, every, your wife, everybody was just giving him all the love and attention that he could, that you could give him. And I said, and that's just not something that's doable every day. And he goes, yeah. And I said, and, and I don't even know where the words came from me, but I, I said, can you let this, this be enough this day? What we, what you have today, can you let this be enough? And he looked and, and he had just this big sigh. And he said, his tears started coming down his face. And he said, yes, yes, I can. Yeah. And so he was able to let go. And, you know, asking that question, can you let this be enough or can I let this be enough? I have found for myself in many situations, even not, you know, life and death situations is a very powerful question. Question, And I will say that sometimes my answer is no. And that's a, a valid answer too, you know, because sometimes that's not what's supposed to happen. You know, and it's not that you're, that I'm hanging on to some you know, whatever and I have this resistance. I just keep looking further for what is it, what is it that I'm, that I, how is, how, how am I supposed to meet this? What is the best way to do this? And, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot with clients too. And what I, you know, when I've gotten into this hospice work is there's just, when, when you're, when, when my body feels a sense of relaxation and peace. That's when I know that the decision that I've made or that I'm making or that I'm thinking of is one that aligns with my body. And that's how I know that this is a, a, a decision that is good for me right now. Not necessarily right or wrong, you know, because there isn't really a objective right or wrong, especially with these things. Um, yeah. That's good advice. So, how did you, I mean, you, if I get my timeline, timeline, right, you went full time 2010, you published the book in 2016. How did you, how did you find the time to write it? I carved out the time. I realized because I was, I was thinking, of it, so I wrote it in 2015 
And in 2014, I was thinking about writing it and thinking about writing it and realizing that, you know, made a commitment to writing it, but still there was no words on any paper or types type on any computer. So I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I need to make time for it. So I, I just blocked off on my calendar Fridays and that was the day that I would sit down and do write, you know, write the book. And that's what I did. And I didn't usually write for eight hours a day. God knows sometimes only a couple of hours. Sometimes I had, you know, I'm the kind of person that I have to have things kind of out of my cleared up and cleaned up and straightened up before I can think to, to write. So I would do that. And then I would, you know, I would get, and sometimes I would just go outside where it was clear up cleaned up and I didn't have to look at it and write up there. But, um, I just, I just did it. And, and, and I had it written in six months by June. I was, I sent it to an editor and then there was the process of getting it formatted and getting it, um, published. And uh, honestly, it was, I, I, all I'll say about it is that there is nothing about that process that has ever enticed me to want to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> the writing of the book was absolutely I, I enjoyed every minute of it. It felt like it just moved through me and, and I was just writing down and it's a book of stories, right? So it's stories that, you know, of clients and, and their pets and their journeys. And, um, I just, it was, um, it was a joy and I, and I knew that I was writing it for, to help others. So I always imagined my audience and that I was telling them a story. Like I was standing, right, sitting right in front of them or across from them, like I would a client. And so, so that's kind of the space I was in, which, which made it just, like I said, it was a joy to, to write it. Um, the, the, the title of it is called, um, uh, Sacred Gifts of a Short Life, Uncovering the Wisdom of Our Pets End of Life Journeys. So, yeah. That was a great, sounds like a great strategy for writing and, and yeah. You know, all right, so you scaled your message through the book, but then in uh, 2019, you created the Wisdom Pause. Let's talk about that. Well, what happened was I, with with my publisher, I, I had it self-published or, I mean, you know, with, a, with the help of a, you know, a small self-publishing company. Um, that turned out not to go very well. So I was able to get the, all the rights back and republished it under the, um, my own imprint called Wisdom Pause. So that started that company. And then um, actually what happened was that during COVID, um, in March of COVID, well, early, even before that, I was wanting to, um, I had taken the, some of the stuff that I was saying, talking about and talked to the, uh, I did a, a several days lecture at the Chi Institute and they have a uh, hospice and palliative care certification. And I was a part of that. I, I, first of all, I, you know, got the certification and then I was, they were revamping it and I was part of, you know, some, some of what I had to say was, was in their new, is in their new certification. Um, and I also spoke at the, um, international animal, Association of Animal Hospice and Palliative Care, IAAHPC, um, and gave a lecture there. 
And that was all in 2019. And then um, I wanted to do some more um, speaking in front of clients or, you know, the, the lay, a lay audience and also um, doing workshops on, you know, kind of trying to figure out and help people with the, the question of, is it, is it time? And, and as I was about to, to get more, try to find a way to get more involved with that, um, that's when COVID hit. And I, I came across this, this uh, coaching program about using Zoom to, to offer workshops. And I thought, well, that might be an interesting thing. So I took this um, coaching program and created um, what is now entitled The Final Journey. And it, I did two Zoom, one just kind of a beta test at my house, and then I had it professionally produced and, and, and videoed. Um, and then I made that into a, an online program. And basically it, is, it, it helps people to get a, uh, develop a healthier relationship with death and suffering and listening to their own inner voice and, and processes to help kind of help them determine if it's time for their pet. And it's not just another checklist. I, I actually have not engaged a checklist. I suggest that people just go online and try them all and see which one, you know, cause they, they are very helpful. They can be very helpful, but they're very, um, they're also relatively, in, in my mind, relatively limited in terms of the ultimate decision because the ultimate decision isn't made from, uh, a, you know, is it, is it yes or is it no? It's made from your heart. Um, and, and I had an experience of that when I was, there's a, there's what's called in, in marketing, a Benjamin Franklin close. And what you do is you give all the positive reasons that you should do this and then all the negative things that you should do and why you shouldn't do, you know, buy this. And then, you know, you try and make sure that the client has more positives than negatives. Well, I had, I had done this with, with trying to make a decision whether or not I should, um, where I should go to high school one year. And, and I had all of these positives in this row and in the other row, there was only one thing. And that one thing, when I looked at it, trumped all the positive things and made my decision. So that's why I have a kind of a, a visceral um, uh, so shall I say um, jaundiced eye as to making lists and you know just doing a check off and, and that's what I've my, my experience with some of my clients has been, it's like, well, but I know this is what they say that, you know, the checklist is saying, but that's not what I'm feeling. So that's where I come in with what, with what I'm offering is how to get clear about that and not, and actually engage it and try and be, and not try, but a, a way, ways of being present while your pet is, um, go, while you and your pet are going through this. Because if you're just freaked out and, and scared and, and what ifing and, and or searching the internet and you know spending eight hours a day on the internet as opposed to you know hours just hanging out with your pet um, and just loving on them, um, you know there's it's helpful to be able to see that 
and see what you're doing. So that sounds like a wonderful resource. So, you know, this work that you do is intimately emotional. What do you, what suggestions do you have or how do you keep your balance? How do you, how do you keep your positive outlook? So, yeah, I, um, I will meditate. Um, my yoga practice has gone somewhere other than into my reality at this point, but, um, hiking, um, and, you know, I have a spiritual community that I connect with. Um, and, and that's, I find very, very, you know, helpful. Um, until COVID I was doing silent retreats and I would at least one or two a year and I five, usually about five days. And that is just a really powerful way of, of, um, you know, kind of getting re re-energized and reconnected. Um, but that hasn't happened. And so, you know, there's just been other, other ways of, uh, you know, trying to stay grounded and, and, and just, you know, moment by moment, just sitting out in my backyard, you know, five minutes and meditating or just taking some deep breaths. Um, so, um, you know, that's kind of the, the gist of it. I also will do sweat lodges again. Those have kind of, you know, not been as frequent because of COVID. Um, and I love doing those. So anything that gets me nice and hot, I like it. Very <laughs> good. for everybody. <laughs> no, no, that's good advice. Well, th- this has been great. Uh, before we go, uh, let, uh, how should we have people, if they're interested in your resources, how can they find them? Yeah, so um, either they can go to lizfernandezdvm.com or um, wisdompause.com. I'm actually in the process of switching over everything to wisdompause.com, but it's not quite there yet, but it will be. But either one will work, you know. So, uh, yeah, wisdom pause. And the pause is P-A-W-S. Yeah. Very good. Very and good. the, the online new- program is, is called The Final Journey, Empowered End-of-Life Decision-Making for Pet Parents. Very good. Yeah. Has it been a bit of a learning curve to establish your presence online? Yes, I've had a lot of help from IT and marketing people and things like that. Yeah. So, and the other thing that I I I, I have done now is this um, the online program. I am now marketing as a prescription to veterinarians to offer as something that we can offer them to our clients and say, "Hey, look, um, this is." This is what is helpful. You know, this, this is, this will be helpful for you to give to, as you go through this journey with your pet, you know, because, uh, they're looking for something. And a lot of times I think that we are not necessarily thinking that we have that, what to give them, especially in today's kind of crazy world. And maybe not so much in some of the holistic practices, but certainly in, in the more, um, Western and or, you know, a, a, the day-to-day busy integrated practice even can be, you know, it's, it's a challenge to, to have the time, I think, to, that clients really want and the connection that they really can benefit from. So it, I think it's us offering them something like this to, to, and my own clients are like, oh my gosh, this helped me so much. I've just had a couple in the last two days that, you know, have made decisions 
based on um, and getting really you know concrete help from what what this program offers. So very good. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful use of the program. Well, Liz, thanks for your time. It was wonderful hearing your story and about the resources you've created. And hopefully, folks will um, check those out and, and put them to good use. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I appreciate what you do. It's it's fun to to listen to all these you know all these our different colleagues, and and so I really enjoy this this particular podcast and what you you've really um, committed to it, and I appreciate that. Oh, thanks so much. All right, you have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.